sleuths and tricky calatheas. This week's show looks at gadgets and answers your questions. It's a show of two parts. In part one, I'll be telling you about some of the gadgets that could help you look after your houseplants. Yes, consider me your personal cue. Did you know that the character Q in James Bond. The Q actually means quartermaster. I'll be talking about hygrometers, moisture meters, snips, scissors, loops, and all kinds of other bits of kit that can help you perform maintenance and care of your leafy charges. And in part two, I'll be answering some questions. Thank you to my new Patreon, Jennifer, who's joined the gang of more than 80 people who are now supporting the show with a donation every month. This means a great deal. It really does help to keep the show going. It's helping me to buy new bits and pieces of equipment. And it will also help fund a very exciting new project I've got coming up in 2019. I was lying in bed over the Christmas break half asleep, half awake as you do. And I find this is often a very productive time for interesting thoughts. And something began to percolate in my brain. And I realised that I need a better place to record podcasts because although usually the audio doesn't sound that bad, the room I'm using is shared with my husband and he has been pretty much locked out of this office for the past year and a half because I'm using it so much. So uh, in order to make some dedicated podcasting space, I am going to be converting part of a storage room into a podcast studio. This should mean better sound quality and also a dedicated space where I don't have to move my microphone and all that set up every five minutes. So it should make for a much smoother operation to the show, meaning more time to concentrate on the content, which is the main thing. So do look out for more information coming out about that. I'm going to be jazzing up my Patreon and all kinds of exciting things. If any of you have got any top tips on sound insulation and that kind of stuff, then I'd love to hear it because I'm not quite sure what I need to do yet. I've got some more research to do on that, but it should be really exciting and fabulous to have my own little cubby hole for my recordings. Thank you also to Matt and Marianne, who both gave one-off donations on code-fi.com. If you don't feel like you can commit to a monthly amount, then it's absolutely fine and dandy to give me a one-off donation. If you look on my show notes, janeperone.com, you can find out how to do that. It's very straightforward. Just click on the buy me a coffee button. For roughly the price of a latte or a flat white, you can help to keep on the ledge on the go for a little bit longer, which is fantastic. Because of recent donations, I've been able to get some extra editing help, which allows me to make sure that almost every week of the year there's an episode of On the Ledge. Well, that's enough housekeeping. Now on with the gadget chat. Yes, uh, there aren't actually that many gadgets you need to be a houseplant keeper. Usually your finger 
a watering can, a bit of plant feed and a couple of chopsticks will pretty much see you bright. But as you get more engrossed in the hobby, of course, there may be things that come in very useful. So let's run through some of the things that I've added to my kit or plan to add to my kit to make my houseplants as happy as possible. The first one is a hand lens. It's what you might recognise as what's called a jeweller's loop or a field loop or a hand loop. And it's a metal piece of kit. It's, it's diamond shaped. And mine has got two lenses that pop out Swiss Army knife style from the main body of the object. And I'm looking at mine now. Mine's made by a company called Rupa, R-U-P-E-R. My husband got it for me for Christmas and it's got one lens that magnifies at 15 times and a bigger lens that magnifies at eight times. So when would you use this? If you have a suspicion that one of your plants has got spider mites or mealybugs and you're not quite sure what you're looking for, then you can use these lenses to get a really good close up look at your plant leaf. You should be able to spot things like spider mite eggs, which to the human eye normally just look like tiny, tiny grains. But when they're magnified by your jeweler's loop, you should be able to see them really clearly. Uh, and this enables you to see exactly what's going on with your plant. And even if you don't have any pest problems, it's just amazing to look at your houseplants up close. Try checking out a cactus spine, an areole with one of these, because it does really give you a totally different perspective on your plants. The one that I have, I think, costs between about 30 and 40 pounds, but they do vary in price depending on how many lenses you have and the magnification. It's good to buy something really solid, though, uh, because this is something that hopefully you'll get years of wear out of. And related to that, over on Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge, Marielle Mew, one of our members, posted some amazing pictures she'd taken using a phone scope, which is a device you can attach to your smartphone and it will magnify up to 30 times. And Marielle seems to be really delighted with hers. If you go and look at Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge, you can see some of her images. So this one's definitely worth a look too. It's about a tenner and it's made by a company called Keycraft. There are loads of other products that you can clip to your smartphone to increase magnification and turn it into a telephoto lens for other kinds of photography. Do tell me if you've bought one of these and are pleased with it and I shall add it to the show notes. Now let's talk about moisture meters. These are devices that you push into the soil. They're usually kind of stick shaped and they tell you how damp the soil is. Now I've always been a believer that your finger is the absolute best moisture meter because you really then can push your finger in a long way and find out what's going on around the roots and your finger is incredibly sensitive. Bear in mind though that if you've got a really big pot your finger probably won't reach the root zone of the plant. So this may be the occasion when you need something a bit more extensive. I've never been particularly convinced by all those cheapo cheapo moisture meters you see on Amazon and eBay that cost between about five and ten dollars or pounds. I've read a lot of bad reviews about them. They don't seem to work very accurately or last very long so I've not bothered investing in one. I've suggested on the show before that you can use a wooden kebab stick and press that into the soil, leave it for a while. And if the end comes out damp, then your soil is probably still fairly damp. 
So I wasn't really going to recommend anything else for this particular area, but this morning I came across something that just struck me as rather genius. It's called the Soil Sleuth, and it's a plastic stick about 30 centimetres long, and on it it's got some notches, and when you press it into the soil and pull it out again after giving it, I think, a half turn, the instructions recommend, it brings up some little soil samples at different depths, which allows you to see how the soil is doing at different depths. You can take that little sample of soil out of the notch, give it a squeeze and see how it's doing and that way tell whether your soil needs any more moisture. The other benefit of the soil sleuth is that while you're testing for moisture you're also aerating the soil. So many plants, once they've been sat in the potting mix that they're in for a long time, lose air pockets in that potting mix because the soil just gets slumped down and that means that growth will not be at its best. So using this kind of technique of placing a chopstick-sized stick into the soil and bringing air to the roots is actually beneficial for the plants. So this particular tool kills two birds with one stone. If you fancy giving this a try, you can have a look at the website soilsleuth.com where you can buy one for $10.99 if you happen to be in the US. You have to pay extra postage if you want to get your Soil Sleuth posted outside the US. I found one on a UK website, uh, an interior landscaping supply website. Uh, I will post a link for that for any UK listeners if you want to get your hands on a soil sleuth because I'm really looking forward to trying this particular tool. It looks like it could be an excellent answer. Next up, let's talk about hygrometers. What's a hygrometer? It just means a tool that measures humidity levels in your air. And as we all know, it's really important for plants particularly many of the houseplants that we enjoy, to have relatively high levels of humidity. It does, of course, depend on the plant. Desert-dwelling cacti and succulents can get by with very little humidity at all, whereas things that grow in tropical parts of the world, the philodendrons and the monsters that we love, they require a lot more humidity to be happy. Just to give you an idea of what you're aiming for, if your humidity is below 20%, well, that's pretty low. 40 or 50% is, is kind of medium and above 50% you can consider to be high humidity. I've been curious about humidity levels in my house for some time. Uh, so recently I dug out an old weather station, a digital weather station that I had and plugged that in because I knew that had some kind of humidity measurement on it. But I wasn't very enthusiastic when I found out that according to that particular device, humidity was at best about 29% in most of my house. And I was a bit worried because it didn't really seem to change when I moved from room to room, particularly into the kitchen, which I know is more humid than some of the other parts of my house. So I decided to invest in a little device which is both thermometer and hygrometer rolled into one. It's called the Thermo Pro TP50. It's a very simple digital screen about the size of a travel clock and it shows you two main numbers, humidity by percentage and also the temperature. And then below each of those readings, there's a minimum and maximum that the device has recorded. So that's handy if you want to see how low the temperature is dropping at night and that kind of thing. This so far seems to be more accurate. My kitchen's measuring about 49, 50 
8% humidity, which is not bad at all. And when I move it closer to clumps of plants, I can see the humidity level goes up by a degree or two, which is what I'd be expect to be seeing. This device was about 11 English pounds. They do a whole range of different products with slightly different features and they're very widely available. I would say this is one thing to put on your birthday list if you are worried about humidity around your plants because this is one way you can really test what's going on and also keep an eye on the temperature at the same time. I put a picture of this on my Instagram stories the other day and several people responded to say that they too have been using this device and are happy with it, which is a good news for me. If you're more of a techie type person, there are a number of devices that uh, provide a wireless Bluetooth link to your smartphone so you can be recording data onto your smartphone. There's one called Inkbird. And there's another called the TFA Weather Disc, uh, which is also worth a try if you like to get all that data nicely recorded onto your phone. So what if after plugging in all these devices, you find out that your humidity levels are not as high as you'd like? Well, the answer chosen by many houseplant keepers is to install one or more humidifiers. These are devices which add water vapour to the air. There are many different types and products on the market to do this, from the tiniest little ones that are powered by a USB cable to really quite substantial devices. I haven't bothered investing in one of these, mainly because I tend to increase humidity in ways more straightforward, like grouping plants together, using pebble trays and so on. If you are going to get buy one of them, do look at things like how easy is it to clean? Some of them, if you look at the reviews, are devilishly hard to clean and will build up mould quite quickly. How long does it run for before it needs refilling? Uh, whether you need to change the filter, because this can add to the cost if you have to replace the filter every couple of months. Uh, how big is the water chamber? How noisy does it run? And will it shut off automatically when water levels run low? So I'd be interested to hear from those of you who do have humidifiers, how happy you are with them and what models work best. Having done a lot of research online without actually having bought one of these, the, one, the model that stood out for me was called the Pro Breeze Premium 3.5 litre ultrasonic cool mist humidifier. Uh, the reason why this one appealed was because it ticked all the boxes of the things that I've already mentioned. It's got a big tank, it runs for 30 hours, it's easy to clean, and it's quiet. There are, of course, a relative views on that. Some people, when reviewing on Amazon, did say it was too noisy, but I guess that just depends how much noise you like in your environment, particularly when you're going to sleep. I'd be interested to know if anyone has this humidifier and if you think it was a good buy. But before you go out and spend a lot of money on one of these devices, as I said, it's worth thinking about the less high-tech ways of increasing humidity. Another one we haven't mentioned already is something you can use if you have a radiator heating system in your house. This is extremely common in the UK. Most houses are heated with radiators. I know it's less common in other parts of the world. But if you have a radiator filled with hot water, letting out heat in your rooms, then one way that you can utilize those to increase humidity is by getting a humidifier that hooks over the top of your radiator and it's as low tech as this all it is is a little reservoir into which you pour water which gradually evaporates and adds to the humidity in your room there's a few different ones you can buy sometimes they're made out of ceramic or out of metal obviously this is dependent on having your heating on but 
after all, dry air from central heating is when rooms become really dry and humidity levels drop. So hopefully when the heating comes on, this will help to increase the humidity in the room. If you're in the US or other parts of the world where forced air heating is very, very popular, I hate that kind of heating, I really do, but I know it's very popular in the US, uh, you can get a humidifier that's installed to work with your furnace. This is a bit of outside my area of expertise, but I will link in the show notes to a useful article on how this can work and how to set it up safely uh, and get this installed by a professional always, of course. Now let's have a chat about snips and scissors. It's so useful to have something you can use for doing all kinds of jobs from taking cuttings to taking off the flower stems from Phalaenopsis orchids when they've died back. Uh, It's a really useful thing to have a pair of florist snips in your houseplant kit. These are quite easy to pick up. You should be able to buy them online or even in your local florists quite cheaply. They're just like a tiny pair of scissors, really, with sharp points that are easy to get into small spaces. If you want to go really fancy, Niwaki make fantastic tools uh, made in Japan and they sell every possible variation on the snip from special flower scissors to ones for grapes. They really are beautiful tools. Do check those out. There'll be a link in the show notes. A little bit cheaper are Bergen and Ball who also do some flower snips for about £10. Also worth checking out. But I have to say my most commonly used item in terms of clipping houseplants are my Fiskars garden scissors which have lovely orange handles and are so easy to spot in my kitchen. Uh, So those are definitely worth a look too. Just to have a quick word about heat. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Heated propagators and heat mats, because as you know, the On The Ledge Sew Along will be coming up before long in the next few weeks. And now is a great time to buy a heated propagator and or a heat mat. So you are ready. As ever with these kind of things, you can spend a lot or a little You can get more advanced propagators on which you can set a specific temperature, but mine are the more simple type where you just have a tray which is heated by electricity and on top of that sit your little seed trays. I've got one called the Garland Super 7. It can fit seven small seed trays inside with plastic dome lids or if you want to swap those out for three larger seed trays which you can get you can do that so you can either start off a small amount of seed or a few more seeds with the different sizes of seed trays garland do a really nice range actually if you're in the uk do check them out they do a square propagator called i think it's called the fab four into which you get four small seed trays or even a propagator that just has a single seed tray Most heated propagators, if they don't have a specific uh, way of changing the temperature setting, will increase the temperature by around 8 or 10 degrees centigrade, bringing it up hopefully to something that will be suitable for most seeds to germinate. 
You want something that's easy to clean and maintain. The plastic does deteriorate after a lot of years, but hopefully if you buy a popular model, you should be able to replace those if they do get broken or cracked. If cuttings rather than seed sewing are your thing, then a heat mat is your answer. You can just put your cuttings in soil in the normal way and place them onto a heat mat, which then provides that bottom heat <laughs> that uh, us gardeners always talk about, uh, which generally help to get plants rooted nice and quickly. Heat mats, uh, they generally come in a variety of sizes. You can get ones up to about 40 centimetres by 120 centimetres, probably even larger than that, depending on how many cuttings you want to do. And they're just a plug and play thing you can wipe down and roll up when not in use so they take up a lot less room than any of these rigid plastic structures that you might be using they're definitely something to look at if you're starting to get serious about your propagation well that pretty much rounds up all the gadgets i wanted to tell you about today but i'd love to know what things you like to use in your houseplant kit to keep your houseplants happy what have i missed out what would you like me to talk about in another episode let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Coming up in part two, I'll answer some of your questions. It's Susie here from the Casual Birder podcast. I love watching birds, whether it's those that visit my garden or ones that I see when travelling. Bird watching is a great pastime. It can be done with others or alone. You don't need expensive equipment. Your eyes or ears are enough. And best of all, it doesn't need any great commitment. The casual birder does as much or as little birding as suits them. Join me each week to hear about the birds I've seen, interviews with others, and stories from listeners around the world. The Casual Birder Podcast, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Right, it's time for some questions and the first one comes from Sarah with a Calathea crisis. Well, aren't we always having com crises with our Calatheas? I know I certainly am. Sarah writes, I started looking for good plant podcasts because a few of my beloved Calatheas have taken a dramatic turn for the worst. I bought them over the summer and they were thriving up until a month ago when the first one's leaves started to dry from the outside in until every leaf was crisped up. They didn't fall off, but they didn't look like they would come back either. I tried to keep the soil moist but not soggy and I've been watering only weekly since I bought them. I thought it must be a humidity thing and have placed the plants in plastic dishes that contain pebbles I keep wet. I also tried placing the first in my bathroom which gets bright indirect light and is more humid. As a last resort, I've placed clearish plastic bags over the two ornatas that have the most dried up leaves, which might be helping the less distressed one, but might be too soon to say. On Saturday, I bought a humidifier, which I've set to kick in at 45 to 50 degrees humidity. Please help if you can. I have other calatheas that have so far been OK, but I'm worried they will follow suit. OK, so she sent some pictures of the ones that are suffering and I'm just looking at the pictures now. 
I think there are some several things that could be going on here. Number one, a lot of people will have bought Calatheas this summer and they think become slightly smug and think they're doing such a good job as plant parents. And then winter has arrived and all hell has broken loose because suddenly that Calathea is really, really unhappy. Going back to my previous point about hot air heating, as is popular in the US and other parts of the world, this is really harsh on houseplants. It's the worst form of heating for them because it just rushes hot, dry air into the room, which is the perfect breeding environment for the other suspect in this case, which is the spider mite. The red spider mite with its microscopic bodies and tiny little granular white eggs can infect a calathea pretty quickly. And this is when they strike, when the plant is a little bit vulnerable and feeling not so good. Yes, the humidity uh, the measures that Sarah has put in place now will help the humidifier and the pebble tray. But unfortunately, some of the damage would have already been done. What I would say is with these calatheas having these kind of problems, spider mite or humidity or both, cutting away loads of the plant is actually surprisingly effective. And even if your plant looks very miserable for a while, if you do correct these problems, you should find that A, you've cut away a lot of the spider mite eggs, which will help to solve the problem. And B, you'll give the plant less foliage to worry about, which will enable it to come back in the springtime. I think Sarah's doing all the right things here. She's upping the humidity. She's putting them in plastic bags so they've got a real chance to recover. Um, I think on the spider mite front, the main thing I'd say is cut off the really worst affected leaves. And if you have leaves that are young and looking not affected by spider mite, then leave those ones alone. How do you tell if it is spider mite? Well, generally the leaves of spider mite infected plants will look very wan and pale as well as crispy. They will just lose their colour and you may also find uh, a granular white stuff on the back of the leaves. That is the spider mite eggs. And you may, if it's a bad infestation, also find little spidery webs around as well. So don't feel too bad if you're one of these people who's bought Calatheas over the summer, done so well, and now you're struggling. As I say, you there are measures you can take, as Sarah has done, to up that humidity, group those plants together, unless, of course, you've got one that you think's got spider mite, in which case, separate that out from the rest. Calatheas, particularly the very papery-leaved ones, are very susceptible to this dry air, which is why we're having this problem. If you can't grow Calatheas, why not swap to something a little bit tougher, like an Aspidistra instead? In fact, I just took delivery of my new Aspidistra Asahi from Cotswold Garden Flowers this week. They've got a special offer on with free postage and packing to the UK. So uh, if you want to get a couple of new Aspidistras, then maybe take a look. Asahi is a variegated one where the tips of the leaves have an ombre style fade up to cream from the main green leaf, which is rather attractive. And I'm really pleased with the plant I just unboxed today. If I get round to it, I'll put that unboxing video on my YouTube channel. Um, so, yes, maybe if you really can't keep Calatheus happy in winter, think about switching to another beautiful but tougher foliage plant like the Aspidistra or even the snake plant. Yesterday was Houseplant Appreciation Day. Now, of course, for us, 
Every day is Houseplants Appreciation Day, but it did bring a flurry of interest on Twitter. And one of the questions that came in there was came from Gillian, and it was about her floppy aloe vera. Uh, she says that this plant was much denser when she bought it, and it soon started flopping badly. Uh, she took out some babies, which she has potted up, and they're doing well. Uh, and then the plant looked great for a few days, and the leaves started to flop again. And she sent me a picture of the plant. It looks really healthy, but I do know what she means about aloe vera flopping. It is a common problem. The thing to remember about aloes is what Colin Walker told us back in his special episode – Aloes are very susceptible to root rot. They really do need to be kept dry around the roots at this time of year. If you give them too much water, they will just start to flop all over the place, particularly when combined with the other issues that succulents face at this time of year, which is not enough light. So to get this plant back from the flop, you need to put it in as high a light level as you can manage in your house. If that involves a grow light, that's fantastic. But if not, your sunniest, sunniest windowsill. And I would definitely make sure that the roots are not surrounded by damp, stagnant soil. If you need to repot into dry, gritty compost, then do so. And just don't water. Just, I mean, I don't, I'm just looking at an aloe pup down here in my office and I don't think it's been watered for at least a month and a half, if not two months now, and it's absolutely fine. So just keep that watering can in abeyance if you possibly can. And hopefully that should help to keep your aloe vera from flopping. What you can do is just get a bit of twine and tie it around the flopping stems just to hold them all together and stop any damage. But the wonderful thing about about aloe veras is that they are very productive plants and you do get lots of pups so if the main plant gets uh, a bit over the hill then you can always replace it with a new pup and today's final question comes from Matt Nugent, who wanted to know about variegated monsteras. I put a picture up on Facebook of myself peering through one of my variegated monstera leaves the other day. I love these leaves, they're so cool. But I can understand why Matt wants to know the answer to this question. So Matt has two variegated monstera. One has got white variegation, which he believes is down to a lack of chlorophyll in those cells. And his other monstera has yellow variegation. So he asks if it's the same reason, why are the cells yellow and not white? So what's going on here? Well, if you have a leaf that is pure white or part of a leaf that's pure white then that means there's absolutely no chlorophyll present it also means there are no pigments present in that leaf that would give it any other kind of color a yellow part of a leaf generally speaking there will be some chlorophyll present but not as much as in the dark green part of the leaf and because of that lower chlorophyll level what happens is that allows other pigments to be kind of made more obvious in the leaf carotenoid pigment which is orange and xanthophyll pigment which is yellow uh, those can start to shine through if you've got pink or red or purple that's usually down to anthocyanins so that chlorophyll level just affects how those other pigments are viewed 
I hope that helps, Matt. I'm hoping to run a whole episode on the wonders of leaves in a future episode, which will allow us to go much deeper into this subject. But hopefully that's answered your immediate question. Matt also had a question that I really didn't know the answer to. Perhaps you listeners can help with this one. He writes that working on my golden pothos, I notice some stems are smooth and some get these raised lines running parallel along the internode. My question is, what are they called and what's their purpose? I need to look into this further because I don't know the answer, Matt. If any of you do know the answer, please get in touch so that I can get that info to Matt and tell all the rest of you because I definitely want to know. And straight after I finish recording this, I'm going to go and look at my pothos plants and see if I can notice these same raised lines. There's always something new to learn in this world of houseplants, isn't there? It's fascinating stuff. Well, that brings this week's show to an end. I'll be back next Friday with more houseplant tips tricks and ideas for you but i've got to go now because i really have an aspidistra that desperately needs potting up because it's sitting in the middle of the kitchen floor i hope you enjoyed this week's show if you have enjoyed the show and you haven't rated on the ledge on your pod app of choice please go and give me a rating i would love to know what you think of the show and those reviews do help other people to find on the ledge which is absolutely vital so head over to your pod app now and click on the five star button if you really love On The Ledge. Have fun with your plant gadgets this week. Take care, bye. The music you heard in this week's episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, an instrument the boy called Happy Day Gakana by Samuel Corwin, and Water in the Creek by Josh Woodward, all licensed under Creative Commons. See janeperone.com for details.